Awesome. All right. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. First Samuel, uh, chapter 17. This is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, it's also coincidentally the first Old Testament book I ever read after I uh, became a follower of Jesus. And so uh, for those of you guys that are unfamiliar with what we've been doing, we've been going through basically a children's Bible this entire fall, looking at how uh, the redemptive story of God really starts from the outset. And how even all the way back in Genesis, we can start seeing how God is laying the foundation and the framework to eventually bring Jesus onto the scene to rescue the entire world. It, it's what we've been looking at, it's what we've been trying to see, because there's this tendency for us, especially if we grew up in the church, to view the Old Testament as a collection of moralistic stories that can teach us some good things and how to act. And in reality, if you treat the Old Testament that way, one, you're going to be binding yourself up with legalism, and you're going to be very disappointed and constantly beating yourself up for not living up to the standards that you're trying to find there. But you're also going to miss out who the actual hero of the Bible is. Because when you take the Bible and you make it about moralistic rules and laws, you are making yourself the centerpiece of the story of the Bible. When in reality, the centerpiece of the story of the Bible is God sending his only son to rescue us from our sin. Right? That the Bible is this unfolding narrative about what God is doing in the life of humanity. And so the story this morning in 1 Samuel 17 is probably in reality the most known story in the entire Bible. More than the, Noah, the Noahic flood, uh, more than Daniel in the lion's den, probably even more than many of Jesus' miracles and his death, burial, and resurrection. That this, this story right, kind of transcends religious Christianity or Judaism and extends into the wider frame of culture worldwide, right? And, and what I'm talking about is the story of, of David and Goliath. And, it, and if any of you guys have ever played sports or are interested in sports at all, you've heard, I'm sure, at some point, someone using the term, it was a David and Goliath type game, or it was a David and Goliath type situation where really in reality what they're talking about is the underdog wins, right? The underdog comes into this situation, they had no chance, and then they ended up winning the game. And, you know, and movies have even been written around this type of idea, right? This, the story of Rudy, right? The, the small kid who wants to go to Notre Dame and he ends up getting to play one snap for Notre Dame and gets a sack while he's there. But really this even happens and unfolds every year in sports, where small schools, small colleges, right, come to a big school and end up beating them in football, right? Happened to UF a couple years ago, if I remember correctly, right? My school, James Madison University, very, very small school in Virginia, beat Virginia Tech in Virginia Tech a couple years ago. It's like the only thing my school has to be proud of, right, in the sports arena for the last... 80 years of their existence, okay? We were like, oh my gosh, yes, we beat Virginia Tech. We never need to win another football game again, right? And so, and it's this idea of they weren't supposed to win. All the odds were stacked against them, and yet they were able to put it out. One more example, think about the NCAA basketball tournament, right? The NCAA tournament has been marketed to us with this very idea, Right, that underdogs have this great chance of doing something huge in the tournament. Now, by the way, if any of you guys are interested in marketing and the lies of marketing, sorry if you're a marketing major in here, statistically, right, underdogs do not do that well in the NCAA tournament. They, on average, win one game. 
and then they're gone, right? So some of you guys are filling out a bracket here in a couple months, and UF's ranked 11 or lower. Don't pick them to go further than the first round. They're not going to because statistically it doesn't happen. But over and over again, we see the idea of David and Goliath coming out, right, in popular culture, even in places that don't have a biblical history or church history in their culture. And, and when stories are retold with the, this idea of the underdog David defeating Goliath, right, they always run to the idea of what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17. But the reality is, is what is going on in the biblical account of David and Goliath is really not the main point that pop culture has taken from it, right? God, God didn't have the story of David and Goliath shared so that when we're the underdog in some situation, we can sit there and be like, I can have courage like David, right? Because the underdog always has a shot if they just give it their all, right? That is not the story that God is trying to communicate. It's not a story about having amazing human courage and being able to overcome that, the, the unspeakable odds that are before you, but instead, it's actually a story connected to just about every other story we've looked at up until this point. God's people have been told something. God's people fear and don't trust the Lord. And God mercifully and lovingly keeps his promise to protect and preserve and continue the story of redemption at this point through the nation of Israel anyway. That human beings don't play as big of a role in the narrative of the Bible as we would like to think. That God, in this particular story, is going to act for his people despite their actions and their faith. So a couple quick notes. Because last week we saw the story of Moses leading uh, Israel out of Egypt. And so we've skipped way forward in redemptive history as far as Israel is concerned, okay? So Israel at this point has spent 40 years in the wilderness and then entered into the land that Abraham had been promised. They took over most of the land and have now settled it. And then they went through a season of listening to God, not listening to God, having good leaders, having bad leaders, and this up and down roller coaster as a nation of when they weren't listening to God, God would give them over to their enemies. When they were listening and following God or when God would send a judge that he would give them victory and reprieve from their enemies. And then we get to the point where we get to, to the book of 1 Samuel, and the people of Israel look around at the landscape of the other countries and cultures around them. They say, you know what's different about us from the other countries and why we struggle so much? We need a king. We need a king. That's, that's what we need to fix everything that's going on in Israel. We need a king. And so they start clamoring for a king, and Samuel, who's the, the, the high priest at the time, is like, you guys don't need a king. God is your king. Right? God has protected you. God has brought you to this point. God has gotten you as a nation and a people group to where you are right now. You don't need a king. God is there for you. And they're like, no, 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 no. You're wrong, Samuel. You're wrong. What will, what will help us as a nation to survive is to have a king. And so Samuel kind of goes before God, and God's like, give them what they want. 
you know, they want, they want a king, let's give them a king. But tell them how bad it's going to be allowing someone to have that much authority and power over them. And so they choose this king, and God selects this guy named Saul, right? And Saul becomes king, and he's a pretty good king for a little while, and then guess what? He does exactly what God said would happen. He stops listening to the Lord, and God leaves, leaves him. The Holy Spirit leaves him. And so then God comes to Samuel and says, Hey, I'm going I'm I'm to give you a new king. I want you to go find him. And so the chapter before the one we're looking at today is the first time we will see David introduced into the narrative. And this is where right, Samuel goes to this farmer named Jesse. Jesse has all these sons, and Samuel gets there and is like, okay, one of these older sons has to be the king. This is who God's talking about. And God's like, no, 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 not him. And then finally Samuel's like, well, this is all the sons. What's going on, God? Where's, where's the guy you told me to come see? And Jesse's like, well, I have a son out in the field. He's a shepherd boy. He's really young. Like, do you want to see him? And the moment David walks up, God goes, him. That's the guy I've chosen to lead Israel at this point, this young kid. Right, so go ahead and anoint him because he's going to be the next king of Israel. Now at this point, when David has been anointed king of Israel, Saul is actually still technically politically the king of Israel. And David is probably roughly 13 years old. Can you imagine being king of, a, of an entire nation at age 13? Right, kind of a big deal. And so you're, there, we're at this point now, we're in this, this weird transition phase in the story of the book of 1 Samuel where Saul is still in charge, but God is moving the nation of Israel toward David's kingship and David's leadership, okay? So when we get to 1 Samuel 17, here's what's going to happen. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah, and Ephs Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Okay, so, so, we immediately move from this story of where David has been named king, and then David's going to join Saul's court as a music player, to, hey, the Philistines have moved into southern Israel and are standing at the edge of a valley. Now, the, strategically, geographically, as far as Israel's concerned, this southern section of Israel or Judah, where the army of the Philistines are located and where they're camping, is pretty important. If they're able to move further up into the valley, they'll be able to control any travel through the, the land. And subsequently, they'll, they'll, they'll basically be able to take over the country. And so they set up there, and they set up by this place called Sukkah. And on the other side, Saul and the Israelites see them setting up. And so they say, okay, well, we're going to set up on the opposite side of the valley, protecting the entryway into the valley on their way north into Israel. And so they set up by this place called Azekah, and, they, and, they're, and they're blocking them off. And what separates the two armies is this dried-out riverbed called a wadi, okay? And so in this area, there might be some water trickling through, but in reality, it's just a pretty flat, low area with mountains and valleys on the side of them. I know some of you Floridians are having a hard time knowing what a mountain is. It's those really tall things, right, that are made up of dirt and rock and clay and other things, and they can go pretty high up into the sky, Okay? And so these are in the southern part of Israel, and they have, are surrounded by them in this particular section of the country. And basically what they do is they sit there, and they just prepare for battle. 
And, and kind of the way battles would work in ancient BC times is the armies would spend a couple days just camped looking at each other, trying to figure out what they wanted to do and how they wanted to go about it. Are we going to wait for them to make a move first? Or are we going to try to flank them in some way? What are we going to do? And so basically, they just began to camp out across from one another, looking at one another. And then every once in a while, right, there would be these treaties or meetings in between the two encamped armies where they would discuss terms and what they were planning on doing. Okay, this is kind of how warfare worked at this time. And so when we get to verse 4, the narrative is going to start changing a little bit, though. Because Israel's gone there to defend themselves, but look what ends up happening. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose weight, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And so, obviously, how many of you guys grew up in church and have heard the story of David and Goliath before, right? Like, it's a famous kid's story, like I said, right next to the story of Noah. And what's really interesting is there's a lot of things that are said about Goliath, and there's a lot of things that are not true about him, right? When, when it's shared, like in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or camp or whatever else. But when, when you hear people call Goliath a giant, it's actually a pretty fair uh, assessment of who he was, right? If you read in the text there, it says that his height was six cubits and a span. That's roughly nine feet, nine inches, okay? So if you want like some, something to compare it to, I'm five, six, so you can pretty much cut off maybe like here down from me and then add that on top. And that would be about what you have. And the reality is, is he was huge. Now Saul, who was the king of Israel, was a fairly tall guy as well, but nowhere near as close as Goliath. Now his spear, they say weighed 600 shekels, which is about 15 pounds. And his armor, about 6,000 shekels, which would have been around 125 pounds. So he's carrying roughly 140 pounds of material with him as he heads out into the battlefield. Now this is important. I'm not just sharing this for the sake of like, oh, and look how big Goliath is or whatever. If you think about warfare at this particular time in, in Israelite history, right, we're like on like the edge of like in, in, in history of the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Okay, so first of all, the fact that, that they're saying Goliath has an iron spear shows that the Philistines were pretty advanced in military terms. On top of that, the Israelites were mostly shepherds, and earlier on we see in the book of Samuel that they actually have not been allowed to make their own weapons. They had to go to Philistia to make them because there were no armorsmiths in Israel. And so their weapons were very primitive, and they did not have anything like 
iron mail armor, bronze armor, bronze helmets. They didn't have any of that type of protection to protect them, save for maybe Saul and a few people in his court. And so they see Goliath coming out with all this stuff on, and they're like, if that's what we're about to be up against, this is, this is a problem. He's nine feet, nine inches, and he's wearing 125 pounds of metal on his body simply as protection. How in the world will we ever do anything to him? Our weapons can't even begin to make a dent in what he's wearing. And so what Goliath is doing here is really psychological warfare. He's standing out in the middle of the two armies, and he's saying, Look at me. Look at your army. You stand no chance. Stand down. Stand down and submit to us. You stand absolutely no chance at all, right? The, the term they use for Goliath there, they call him a champion, which is a Hebrew term that's rare. The Hebrew term is rarely used in the New Testament. It literally means one who stands between. Because in, in warfare at this time, you didn't have people saying, hey, we'll just have our two best fighters fight each other to see who's going to win the battle. But Goliath seems to introduce this to the Israelite army and says, okay, here we go. Come out. Somebody, somebody take me on. And the entire time he's doing it, he's taunting the Israelites. He's like, I'm a, I'm a Philistine. You're a man of Saul. Send someone down to fight me. And really what he's doing is he's calling Saul out. He's saying, if any of you guys are supposed to come out, if any of you guys are going to defend yourself, you're going to defend your honor, Saul needs to come down here or his best champion. Whoever it's going to be needs to come down here and fight me. And if you win, we'll serve you. But if I win, you guys are going to serve us. And then he does something that's a, kind of a big deal. He says, I know you're not going to send anybody down here. I defy you all. None of you guys are going to be man enough to come down here and fight me. It's like, I, I dare any of you to come down here. Now, Israel at this point, right, has seen God's faithfulness time and time and time again. Right? Abraham, given a son. Right? That son, having two sons, one of them being the line of Israel, Jacob. Those sons, right, sold one son into slavery in Egypt, and yet God preserved them and then used that son to save the Israelites during a famine. Then they were enslaved in Egypt because they went down there to be saved from the famine. And then God delivered them from Egypt. Then once they were delivered from Egypt, God time and time again kept them safe in the wilderness for 40 years. And after that 40 years was over, then he sent them into the promised land so that they might conquer their enemies and take over the land that he had promised Abraham from the beginning. So over and over and over again, Israel has seen God make promises and keep them. And yet they stand out in front of Goliath, who is defying them, defying their God, defying their leadership, defying their men, and look at what they do. Verse 11, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is the real problem. Right, when a lack of trust and faith in the promises of God presents itself, this is what happens. Right, this, what, what you see out of the actions of Saul and the, and the army of the Israelites is no different than the reactions you and I have when we stop tr pro, uh, believing in the promises of God. But right, the moment that, that something comes along, a temptation to sin, a, a, um, 
a difficult situation or a difficult season of life to walk through. The moment, right, that that is presented before us and we choose not to believe in the promises that God has given us in his word or even in his past faithfulness to us, we end up doing exactly what the Israelite army does here and that's become paralyzed with fear to the point where it says that they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They don't move. Now, it was Saul's duty to fight in this situation. Right? He should have been the one that said, all right, Israel, I'm going to stand up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this for us. I'm going to head out, and I'm going to fight Goliath for us. But because he's not walking with the Lord, as you have seen earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, right, he's paralyzed with fear. And so what ends up happening is they just sit there and stare at Goliath, taunting them for days upon days upon days. Right, because the reality, what Israel is struggling with right now is something I call spiritual amnesia. They've experienced the faithfulness of God time and time again, and yet when the going gets tough right in front of them, they forget everything that God has done in the past, and they can only see the hardship that is sitting in front of them currently. And when they see that hardship, they become completely paralyzed and refuse to act. Now, their inaction in itself is a problem, but their inaction, right, is not the main problem. Their, the main problem is that they don't trust God to deliver them out of this situation. They look at the Philistines and they say, there's nothing we can do here. We stand absolutely no chance. We're going to continue to have our army sit here, but we stand absolutely no chance against these guys. Now, normally I'm not big and in, in, in to, to over, um, you know, allegorizing or making things like into to real life examples, especially in the Old Testament, because there's a real danger. But guys, there is not a person in this room who has not at some point stared down some situation in their life and been paralyzed with fear by it simply because they forget who God is. Simply because they forget who the promises of their God are. Simply because they are trusting in themselves and their own ability instead of remembering how they got to that place in the first, at, in the first place. Right? It's so interesting, right? Because Israel would not even be in existence as a nation without the faithfulness of God over and over again. And yet they get to this point and who are they worried about? We don't have a, we don't have a fighter capable of fighting this guy. It's the same way, like, in my marriage, where I've seen Jackie and I be paralyzed financially at times and not knowing where the money's going to come. If Jackie and I ha have this tendency to bicker, sorry, sweetie, I'm going to throw you under the bus right now. Are you ready for this? Okay? So, right, I grew up in a home. My parents did pretty well. I never really had to worry about money. Jackie grew up in a home that was pretty broken, and so they were constantly struggling with money. And so then Jackie foolishly married me, who makes no money. And, like, our first year of marriage, I think we made about $35 after all was said and done, right? And so there's these moments where, like, you know, I would say, I, I want us to do something, or I want us to support this missionary, or do this thing, and Jackie's like, we don't have any money. Where's that going to come from? I'm like, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Now, part, now, it wasn't because of some great faith in me that I'm, like, saying to do this. It was just because I was always used to be like, oh, we'll just do it, you know? You know, it, it'll just happen, right? I, I was foolish and naive at how, like, balancing a checkbook works, right? And actually doing things with money works. I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll just do it. Now, the interesting thing was, is like, this was this like crossroads in America because Jackie's like paralyzed with fear. She's like, if we spend that money, you will not eat next week. 
And she's like, even Taco Bell, which is a dollar, even that, you cannot, we, like, we will not be able to afford it. You will eat nothing. And I'm like, oh, God math, right? God will just show up. It'll be fine. It'll, it'll be good. Now, here's the thing, right? In those moments, right, we, we're, we're brought to a crossroads where we're going to choose to act and do something that we feel led to do and we feel is the right thing to do. But the situation we see around us paralyzes us with fear, right? With my wife in that situation, what paralyzed her, she's like, well, you don't make any money. How are you going to pay for this, right? With the Israelites in the situation, we don't have any great warriors or champions. How are we going to win this battle, right? It can, it can be involved in any situation, though, like with reconciliation of friendships, right? Well, we don't really have that strong of a relationship, or we don't really communicate that well, or he's a jerk when we're fighting, or she just cries the whole time whenever we're trying to work anything out, right? And we sit there and we get paralyzed by the scenario and the situation around us instead of remembering the faithfulness that brought us there in the first place, right? Like, for example, in Jackie and I's situation, God had lovingly always provided for Jackie, even till that point. It may not have looked as good as what some other people in prosperity terms had enjoyed, but he had still provided. And the same was true for me. And yet you can come to that moment and you can stare at your checkbook and be like, I'm not going to act. I'm not going to move. And the Israelites get to this point where they sit there, they have spiritual amnesia, and they're paralyzed and they refuse to act. Now, What's going to happen is God's going to move into the situation and rescue Israel from themselves. Okay, look at, look at verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years, right? So they're reintroducing David to the story. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. So, you get to this point, right, where we get a little background on David. He's got some older brothers. We saw some of this in the previous chapter, but we didn't see it this morning, so I'll just tell it to you, right? But what's happening at this point is David's traveling back and forth between this battlefield that's being set up and the pasture land where his dad's sheep are being kept, because he's helping tend to the sheep. And, and here's why this is important, because what's being communicated is, is he's the youngest child in the family. And uh, if you throw up Numbers 1-3 for me real quick, this probably gives us an indication of, of about how old David was. But since he was not in the military, we know that he was at least under the age of 20. Because when they did the census in Numbers chapter 1, he says, From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them in company by company. And so the, the draft age, if you will, for the nation 
nation of Israel was age 20. And so because David was young but not at the battle site, we know he's at least under the age of 20. He's not allowed to be in battle yet. And as a matter of fact, he's so young, he's not even a squire or someone who's there. Okay, so he's traveling back and forth. And what he's doing is he's taking food from his dad's farm, bringing it to his brothers and for his company commanders so that they can eat while they're sitting along at the battle site. Because if you look at what they say there, how many days is the standoff at at this point? 40 days. Now imagine 40 days of no school or work and how productive you would be if, if life was still going on around you. This 40 days is completely um, paralyzing Israel, both from a spiritual aspect, but also from an economic aspect. They're not able to do any of the things they need to do to farm the land. They're an agrarian society, and they're not able to take care of their farms or whatever they're doing because these men are laid out in battle array standing across from one another. And so the sin and inactivity and fear of Saul and his army is leading to really the internal collapse of the entire economy in the country at this point. And so David, to make sure that his brothers are at least eating, is carrying food from his father's farm over to the Israeli army while they continue to be stuck in this stalemate. Now I'm going to fly through a few verses here because we'll be here all day if we read every single verse. But in, in, in verses 19 through 23... David's going to show up to bring food to his brothers one day, and he's going to hear Goliath standing out at the wadi, basically doing what he's done every day at that point, which is taunting Israel and taunting the God of Israel. He's standing there taunting them, okay, and he hears Goliath. And when you get to verse 24, David kind of looks at some of the guys that are in the company with his brother, and he's like, what is, like, who is this guy? First of all, why aren't you guys fighting? And second of all, who is this guy that's just down there screaming at you guys while you guys sit up here looking like you're getting ready to pee yourselves? And why is no one allowing him, why is everyone allowing him to talk to you and talk about our God the way that he is? Why are you allowing him to continue to talk this way? And they're like, well, that's Goliath. He's their champion. If anyone goes down and fights him and defeats him, they'll be a made man. If anyone defeats him, the king has promised to give him their daughter and that this family will never pay taxes again. Is basically what they share. And so David's like, someone's got to step up. This is ridiculous. What do you, what, what's going on? Like, I can't believe no one's stepping up here. What's wrong with you guys? How dare you let this guy not only call you guys out, but more importantly, call our God out? How dare somebody do that? Like, I, how dare you guys allow him to continue to do this? And so it, the message kind of goes through the camp, and it gets to King Saul. And Saul's like, all right, bring, bring, that, bring David before me. Bring David before me. And we get to verse 31, and this is when Saul hears about David, and this is what he says. Look at this. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. That's referring to Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and 
took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So here you have this kid, right, maybe at most 19, show up, hears Goliath taunting the armies not a man has moved for 40 days and he goes in to talk with king saul and says let no man's heart fail because of goliath your servant will go and fight with this philistine now this is where we kind of get into our moment of like oh this is a the great story of like the underdog and whatever else right because if you're reading this you're like david has a death wish right he stands no chance and what's going on here. And yet, not only is David willing to do this, but I don't know if, you're, if I'm reading too heavy into that, but he seems pretty ticked off to me. Right, that there's a, this righteous anger coursing through his veins where his love for God and the people of God is being trounced upon, and he's not going to take it. Now, stop and think about that for a second. Right, all Goliath was doing was saying, hey, you guys are f- afraid to fight me. You guys won't do anything, and your God's a joke. And look at the response of David, who loves God and has placed his faith and trust in him to the way that someone talks about God. Guys, here's something that I'm like super concerned about with our generation. We don't care enough about the things that really matter as the church, and so we're losing our voice. Because we won't stand for anything, right? I don't mean like defending ourselves in the political arena, right? Or being able to give the right of ap- types of apologetics to certain types of arguments against those who might have an atheistic or agnostic worldview. No, I'm referring to when we start talking about things that are clear issues, especially in our country. I'm talking about racial injustice, poverty, right? The treatment of women and children. Guys, if, if you're, if you're going to go to church and claim to be a disciple of Christ and then not stand against those things, please stop calling yourself a disciple of Jesus. Please. Okay? I'm not, I, I was told by Derek not to get overly political this morning, so I'm not. Okay? But we are, amen, right? But we are in the middle of a season right now, right, where tensions are very, very, very high in our country. Okay, 30 years old, I know I'm young, but it's the most tense I've seen it in my lifetime. And you want to know why? Because it should be. There are some serious, serious issues underlying multiple layers of the country we live in right now. And the church, I beg of you, the church, I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about you, the people, if you were a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ here this morning, need to say something about it. You need to stand up and say, you know what, I don't have all the answers, but I'm not going to put up with it. Because my God doesn't put up with it. I'm not going to put up with injustice. The same way that David walks into this situation and says, nope, not going to let you talk about God and God's people that way. 
Not going to let you treat them that way. Not going to let you act that way. The people of God should be leading the charge for justice and wholeness, not trying to defend things because of a particular political leaning. And that's both sides, by the way. I am not calling out a particular candidate right now. That as the church, we will lose any credibility and voice we have if we don't stand on the right side of this issue. And so I'm begging you right now to be in prayer about what this looks like in light of what God has to say about racial injustice, poverty, the treatment of children and women in this country, all of these things, right? Very, very important issues. And the decisions you make are dictating a lot, both in your own heart, about what you prioritize and care about, but also to an unbelieving world around you, right? I've had friends in the last couple days contact me asking me how the church can continue to stand behind some of the things that they've seen going on in the last six months in our country. And my response has to be, sadly, I don't know why they aren't. But like David, we can stand for something better, the way of God. The way that he wants and the things that he's asked of us in dealing with injustice and disparity. And so David's like, look, I'm, I'm ticked. I don't know why no one else in this military is ticked right now, but I'm pretty ticked off right now, and I'll fight him. Of course, Saul's immediate response is, dude, you're too young. You can't, I mean, you're not even old enough to fight. You can't, you can't go out there. And so David, I guess in a brilliant legal strategy, says, well, what about that time I killed a bear and a lion? You know, this Philistine's, he can't be that, he can't be that much bigger than a bear, right? You know, and God delivered the, the bear and the lion over to me. I'll just kill this guy the same way that I killed the bear. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not worried about it at all. And then you see verse 37. Look at what he says. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He's not like super confident in his own ability. Who is he confident in? God. Like, look, look at how big I am. Not a big dude. I fought a freaking bear. <laughs> and won. And I also fought a lion and won. Clearly, God gave me aid. I'm going to trust him again. Right? I've seen God do everything else with Israel. Why not trust him in this situation? Why, why not trust God here? He'll be with me. And so then Saul's like, oh, uh, okay. And then like, kind of gives this like half-hearted, like, Lord be with you. You know, like, go ahead, right? You know, that fake thing that my church used to always do growing up, but they didn't really care what you were doing. Right? He says, like, oh, Lord be with you. And then we get to the part of the text that we read from, from today. Right? You get to verses 38 through 40, and Saul's like, okay, well, at least put my armor on, David. You know, at least, at least put my armor on and go out there and be ready to, to, to fight this guy. And so he starts trying to put on Saul's armor, and he, he can't put it on. It's too big for him. It weighs him down. He's like, nah, I don't need this. It's not a big deal. And the weapon of choice that he has is his shepherd's staff, which is... To translate that for you, think strong walking stick. <laughs> okay? So he's going to fight this guy with a 15-pound spear, and he's like, I got this really sweet stick that I'm going to walk into this battle with. Okay? And then he picks up five smooth stones, and he walks out into the battlefield. Now, Goliath, 
who's been taunting this military for 40 days, sees this kid walking out to him with a stick, and his response is, what am I, a dog? Right? Are you bringing a stick for me to fetch? Right? What, like, what's, what's going on here? How, how dare you send out this child, right, to fight me? And, and how dare you, right, think that you could defeat me? And then he curses the God of Israel and says, Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds. This nine foot nine military veteran is furious. And instead of just laughing it off, he doesn't take him seriously and says, Come here, I will feed you to the birds. I'm not phased. Now the reality is, and this is why I think our culture kind of misses the David and Goliath story and mixes things up. I don't think Goliath has any sort of advantage in this fight at all, okay? Think about it for a second. David is small, young, and speedy. Goliath is large and weighed down by a lot, okay? So anybody, any of you guys have ever played sports... What typically wins out? Speed. Tip, typically, speed wins out. And so, from a military perspective, right, Goliath, who's large but heavily weighed down, David could easily respond to any swing of that 15-pound spear and just move out of the way. He doesn't have any armor on. All he has to do is dodge what's going on. And he's able to harass Goliath and tire him out from a military perspective. Now, the bigger advantage of what's going on here, though, is something that David knew and Saul missed. While Israel cowered in fear at Goliath, the things that Goliath said and did actually guaranteed victory for Israel. Go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. This is God's promise to Abraham. And these Israelites are descendants of Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So David, who knew the promises of God, <laughs> knew what God had done over and over again, is like, this guy's cashed his ticket to defeat. By cursing us and cursing our God, he's actually set himself up to lose because I know that when God promises something, he comes through. I know that when God says he's going to do something, he does it. I know that when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. And so David displays this insane amount of courage and confidence, not in his own ability, but in God's. He's like, well, God's got this. I'm not worried about it. Look what he says in verses 46 and 47. This day, and he's talking to Goliath, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. The same way that we saw last week that God saved the entire Israelite nation by placing himself in a pillar of smoke between the most powerful army at the time and then parted the Red Sea so that they might cross. David looks back on that, looks at the promises of God and says, this is nothing compared to what my God can do. Nothing. He's got this one in the bag. This is so, e- this is so easy. So we know what happens, right? He walks out, he flings a stone, and hits Goliath in the forehead. Goliath gets knocked out, he walks up, he takes Goliath's own sword because he didn't have one and cuts Goliath's head off. And what do the Philistines do? They take off running, right? They didn't keep up their end of the bargain. And Israel wins a great battle. And so, so many of us, we read that story and the lesson that we take away from it is, gotta have courage like David. I gotta have faith like David. And and some of that is true. I mean, there's some things to glean from that. There's some things to see there. So it should be some encouragement for us to see the faithfulness of other men and women who follow the Lord, and that might encourage us. Because David, more than anyone, should have shrunk away, and he didn't. Because he knew who his God was, and he trusted him. And really, in reality... Right, like the, the important lesson here is not being like David in his actions, but knowing about God's promises and trusting them. I think the, the epidemic that we have seen in Scripture since Genesis chapter 3 has been a lack of trust in the goodness of God. That God might declare something to be good and true, And we respond with a lack of trust and with a lack of response to his goodness. Right, with Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree. You will surely die. You don't need it. And what do they do? They eat from the tree. And we tend to, just like our first parents, be paralyzed by trusting in anything else but God. Trusting in ourself, trusting in our job, trusting in another person, trusting in politics, trusting in some sort of system. And when the road gets hard, we get paralyzed by fear the same way Israel does. And yet, the promise of Scripture is that God always has the final word that God always has the final say, that God is always faithful to his promise, not because of something his people do, but because he is faithful, it's just who he is. The re- like the reality is, is Israel did not deserve to be delivered from this battle. They refused to fight Goliath. They were completely paralyzed by fear. They exercised a very poor witness of their God. 
This is why I still have hope for the church. Right? When I was talking earlier about the crossroads that I think we are in right now as the church in America, this is why I have great hope. Not because I think all of you are amazing, although I do love you. But I know you're God. Right? God's been staring down the face of injustice for thousands of years. And the message of the gospel continues to expand and the church continues to grow and people continue to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that through them, God uses his people to bring restoration. Because the story and the hero of the story of David and Goliath is not David, it's his God. It's the God who delivered Goliath over to him and kept his promise. And while David will end up probably being the best king that Israel ever has in their history as a nation until they are conquered by the Babylonians, he's really just a part of God's big redemptive plan throughout the entire Old Testament as he continues to reveal his faithfulness to mankind and show them who he is, David is just a stepping stone. Yes, he's a good king. Yes, he has his faith in God. Yes, he brought prosperity and military victories to Israel. Yes, he saved Israel many times through military conquest. But the most important thing about David is not even the fact that he did all these things for Israel, but the promise that God gave him while he was in office. Throw up 2 Samuel chapter 7. When David was in his later years as a king, he was in communion with God and he had a prophet named Nathan. And this was, these were God's words to that prophet Nathan for David. He says, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, like we saw today, <laughs> from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Notice, what does God call David? A prince. Because the real king is God and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Keep going. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Guys, here's the promise that God is making to David in that moment. He's not talking about Solomon. Solomon's kingdom ended. Right? Solomon's kingdom did not run and last forever the way that God talks about here. But someone did fulfill this promise. Jesus. Right? This is why when you read early on in the, in, in the gospel accounts and they show the lineage of Jesus' parents, they both trace back to the line of David. And like the king that is promised to David and his line in 2 Samuel, Jesus fulfills all these promises. Except that he's not punished for his own iniquities. He's punished for ours. He establishes a house forever, the church. That forever his kingdom will reign as he ascended into heaven and seats, sits at the right hand of God the Father. He promises that he will be a father to him and that this person will be his son Guys, this is a direct promise of Jesus one day coming to Israel. That his kingdom will be established through his act of love. Ultimately, his love on the cross. Guys, the greatest king that Israel ever knew is a king they rejected. They loved David. But the greatest king Israel ever had was the one that they turned over and gave to the Roman guards. That the king that they had long looked for to save them from oppression and to save them from their enemies as they talk about in 2 Samuel, the greatest enemy is that of sin in ourselves. And that God as we've seen time and time again in the Old Testament, keeps his promise and sent his son. And the promise to you and I from God is that his son came for a purpose. That he came, that he lived, and he died on account of our sins. That when Jesus went to the cross, he was carrying the weight and the penalty of all that we had done in rebellion towards God. So that God's wrath might be fully satisfied in him. He paid the penalty, was buried, and then rose again three days later in victory over sin and death. And the promise of God is that through Jesus, you're offered new life, forgiveness, and an internal inheritance with him that you can know who God is, that you can be known by him, that you can walk the rest of your life with him, knowing him and trusting him. 
Every Sunday we take communion here. And when we take communion, what we're doing is we're identifying with the belief that we believe Jesus' flesh and blood were poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And that we're trusting in him both for the forgiveness of our sins, but also to hold on in the completion of that forgiveness for eternity. And so we're going to take communion here in just a moment. And as we're reflecting during that time, I would invite you to reflect on the nature and the character of God and who he is. He is faithful and he is good. And when God promises something, he does it. Are you struggling with family strife right now? God wants to see it reconciled. Are you struggling through economic strife right now? God wants to see it reconciled and not in a prosperity theology way where you might have a new Bentley, but in a way that both teaches you money is a tool to be used for the advancement of the kingdom of God, not for your own glory or pleasure. If you're walking through the midst of personal depression and emotional stress, the promises of God are that he wants to see that reconciled to him. If you see injustice all around you in the workplace or things that you do, God wants to see that reconciled. And the promises of God is that he will do it. Might we trust him enough so that he might act and use us to do this? Let's pray. God, thank you that in the midst of one of the most famous stories in all of scripture, the true story that you're communicating to us is a story of your own faithfulness and goodness towards us. The promise of standing in a hopeless situation the way that the Israelites were and being rescued from it by you. God, that is the story of every single person in this room, including me. We stand staring down the greatest enemy that has ever existed and that is the enemy of ourselves with our sin and rebellion towards you. If we're honest with ourselves, we're way worse than we think we really are. That if we try to create and come up with a moral checklist, we will inevitably fail time and time again. But God, the way that you rescued the Israelites from Goliath and the Philistines, you rescue us from your own, our own sin by sending your son to die in our place. God, may that cause great joy and hope to rise in us, but also great hope in your other promises that we might walk with you faithfully, that we might trust you as we seek to put sin to death to fight injustice, and to declare the goodness of you, our God and our King, to the world around us. Father, thank you so much for your Son. May we continue in this time to honor and praise Him because He is worthy. Jesus, we love you. We ask this in your name. Amen.